What should patriotism look like for Christians, and are there ways to improve the penal system and rehabilitation? This is On Life with Jamie Sinclair, Episode 8. So patriotism, what should it look like for Christians? Occasionally you encounter uh, almost a patriotism that looks like America can do no wrong, and this is clearly false. Uh, America can do wrong, just like anyone can. Uh, it's just a, it's a group of people. And America has done much wrong. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about Americans have done many wrong things, but uh, America as a uh, a collective has literally institutionalized and, and done terrible things like the, the way, I mean, some, some major ones come to mind pretty quickly, like the Trail of Tears and then uh, chattel slavery and uh, what happened during World War II there, the uh, internment of Japanese Americans. And there's just, I mean, those are some major things that the way we've treated uh, Native American nations over the years and really violated treaties. And there are some really major things, but also the list can go on and on and on, uh, including some foreign foreign policy stuff. Just, uh, I don't want to get into a bunny trail in foreign policy at the moment. But it definitely you encounter thinking sometimes where any sort of questioning, should we have actually fought this war where thousands of Americans died? Questioning that is considered unpatriotic and almost like uh, um, speaking ill of the dead. I'm like, no, no, no. Like part of the tragedy, in my opinion, of of, of some of the some of the the sacrifices that have been made is at times I think. Those sacrifices may have been uh, made for a war that we shouldn't have been into the, to begin with. And so, again, I'm not going to talk foreign policy at the moment, but the, but the notion that patriotism means you can never question things like this and Americans can do no wrong, it's just, it's false on its face. It's, it's kind of stupid, and I don't think I need to belabor this point. But is there a patriotism that's appropriate for believers today, a, a, a love for country and even a, a pride of sorts? Um, when thinking about patriotism, which I've been thinking about because this past Saturday was July 4th, a very patriotic time of year for Americans, I, I was just thinking about how um, clearly we as Christians we are we are sojourners, pilgrims. The the, the phrasing in First Peter chapter two. Although in that particular place, I'm not going to get sidetracked. Okay, the, the biblical principle though is our citizenship is in heaven. In Philippians chapter three, the apostle Paul says, "Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ." Our identity isn't foremost American or whichever country you call home, our identity is the children of God. We are the people of God. Our citizenship is of a different place. We are aliens passing through this strange land. Um, in First Peter 2, I'll, I'll read a little bit more from there. He's speaking to the identity of believers. As born-again Christians, we, we have an identity that, uh, it, it, a newfound identity. We are the people of God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Okay, so here's where we see the strangers and exiles or aliens or sojourners, pilgrims, depending on the translation. And, and, and Peter's literally writing to a church that's been dispersed, um, that they're all over kind of the, the Middle East into the, the Mediterranean region, various parts of the Roman Empire. And so he's calling, talking to them as strangers and exiles. Uh, but, but there is this interesting, and I think he's most specifically referencing that. You're kind of spread out. Many of you are in places that aren't like home. But there really is kind of this, this second meaning, and, and we see it clearly articulated in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is of a different place. We are not primarily Romans or Judeans or Americans. We are Christians, the people of God. And let's conduct ourselves honorably in, in the places we find ourselves right now, but recognizing that we are God's people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, not the American nation, but the nation of God, the people of God. Um, and we should love everyone, but it is both fine and often good to have a special affection for some. So, so we see on the one hand, like we're not Americans first. But I think being an American can be meaningful and appropriate. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul's writing and he says, If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, as Christians, there's a call for all of us to, to work hard and to be generous. But there is a special responsibility that we have to provide for our family and especially our household or like almost what you might call like the nuclear family, dad, mom, some kids. Um, and then family would be more the extended family. And I think it's, it's important to have a sense of extended family and a connection and, and loyalty one to another. In Galatians chapter six, we read this verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Uh, we see this call to do good for everybody, but then there's a focus, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Uh, uh, again, there is a, yeah, let's love everybody. Let's serve everybody. Let's be generous towards everyone. But the reality is I cannot be equally generous towards 7 billion people. There's a place God put me and I'm going to like loving your neighbor is who, who do you come across, so to speak? And what we see is there's a special call, kind of a, a focus and affection that's appropriate for your family, for the people of God, kind of like your local church, etc. cetera. Uh, in, in Romans chapter nine, uh, the apostle Paul was a Jew. He was a, a Hebrew, an Israelite, and uh, he was born again and is preaching the gospel. And actually, God primarily called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But as uh, a, a member of the Jewish family, you might say, uh, Paul had a, a, a special affection for his fellow Israelites and, and really, a, in some ways, a special burden. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Certainly, we see the the Apostle Paul wanted people all across the globe to hear the gospel and to uh, give their lives to Jesus and to be part of the family of God. And, And we see that evidenced in his ministry. But there's like this, this special, profound connection that he senses to his brothers and sisters, his flesh and blood, his fellow Hebrews. So, so thinking of, of patriotism, we recognize uh, form, we're not foremost Americans, but we are Americans. And, and there's nothing inappropriate, and maybe it's actually even good at times and in ways to say, yeah, I'm an American. There's a special connection I have to my fellow Americans, my fellow, in my case, New Yorkers or people in the North Country. Uh, that, that is an appropriate thing. We, we should have special bonds with our family, with our local church, and even with the, the people of the, the region that we come from. Now, American patriotism, it's certainly not brand new, but is under attack at the moment. And, and I do think, again, I, I've seen and experienced myself that, that inappropriate America can do no wrong patriotism. But right now, there's a threat of any sort of patriotism is embracing white supremacy and is is wrong and inappropriate. I just came across a a tweet by Colin Kaepernick just a few days ago. Maybe he tweeted it on July 4th. I don't recall. And, And he said this, black people have been dehumanized, brutalized, criminalized, and terrorized by America for centuries and are expected to join your commemoration of, quote, independence end quote, while you enslaved our ancestors. We reject your celebration of white supremacy and look forward to liberation for all. Okay. Um, Well, I have a bunch of thoughts, but I want to bring up uh, another famous and uh, renowned American, Frederick Douglass. He shared some thoughts that that in some ways might even sound like an echo of what Kaepernick shares, but really are fundamentally different. Um, For those of you who don't know Frederick Douglass, he was a slave in America. He escaped. Um, He escaped and lived in Rochester, New York, and he was a master orator. Uh, He he gave speeches all over the place. He was a prominent abolitionist before the Civil War. And uh, sadly, just this past weekend, I think on Saturday, a statue of his in Rochester, New York, was toppled and um, and and destroyed. Well, I shouldn't say destroyed, but broken. We don't know by whom. I don't know if it was BLM protesters or maybe even uh, who knows who Antifa or it could have even been like white supremacists just trying to stoke things. I I really don't know who did it, but I know this. Um, Frederick Douglass was a hero, an American hero, and uh, certainly such disrespect is sad. Uh, He wasn't a perfect person. I'm sure if you dig through his life, you'll find some issues. We talked about statues and honoring people last week. He is certainly deserving of honor, and we don't don't celebrate him because of his sins. We celebrate him because uh, he spoke truth, and he called people to... He called people to what God had for them, um, to pursue justice and to pursue liberty. Um, American history is complex. He gave a speech in Rochester, New York on July 5th in 1852, 
And uh, the speech was really about kind of what the 4th of July means to a slave. It's important to recognize this, a massive difference between Kaepernick's context and Douglas's context. Kaepernick right now is living in one of the freest and safest places in the history of the world for anybody, um, especially for a black man. Like, uh, I'm not saying America is perfect today. I think we have issues. I think we clearly have a lot of issues. And I am 100%, by the way, in favor of making progress and seeing more reform. And really, ultimately, we need to see a massive awakening, a turning to Jesus across this nation. Uh, we, we need help. But I think it's important to recognize we are living in 21st century America. Uh, maybe four or five years ago, I was at SUNY Potsdam, and I was with a young man who uh, was protesting some issues like this. It was a BLM-related protest. And, and this young man, he said, I, I was with him. It was an afternoon, weekday afternoon. And I was, I, there was a crowd of people at the student union at SUNY Potsdam. And, and I was talking to him, just kind of asking him questions. I wanted to really understand what was on his heart and his mind. And in very genuine, I do not doubt his sincerity. He said he, was, he had math class at that moment but he was protesting because he was afraid that if he went to math, math class, he would be risking his life. Math class, by the way, was about 800 meters away. We were at the student union. He had math class in Carson Hall, uh, which was just the other side of the quad. Uh, and certainly in that moment, I felt, uh, I felt compassion for someone who is genuinely afraid, but I also was quite aware of how absolutely irrational that fear was. Here's this young man, a college student at SUNY Potsdam in 20, I don't know, this is like 2015, uh, literally probably one of the safest places in the history of humanity for a young man to sit, uh, to, to go to a math class. Uh, I don't think there's ever been a murder at SUNY Potsdam that I'm aware of. Certainly not in my lifetime. I'm 34 years old. I graduated from SUNY Potsdam. Uh, this was a, is a tremendously safe place, uh, a, a place that bends over backwards to try to provide assistance and help to anyone who needs it, regardless of their background or the the, the groups to with which they might identify. Uh, th th this fear was utterly irrational. He had everything to give thanks for that in, in a a world that if you look at thousands of years of history has been plagued by murder, betrayal, war, unrest, famine, disease. We live in a place that is uh, amazingly free and safe and prosperous, that even somebody who grows up relatively f poor can be sitting at a university campus, clothed, fed, sheltered, and protesting because they feel unsafe going to math class. Uh, Okay, I don't want to... Okay, moving on. So the point is, Kaepernick's contest, context is this. This is Colin Kaepernick right now. He is a multimillionaire with a loud voice. Douglas's context is this. Slavery is legal in the United States. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, were being... Uh, it just They were part of a system that was breaking apart families and tormenting individuals. Uh, and this was legal. This was endorsed by the government. He escaped slavery. And here he is calling for its abolition. If, a radically different context, I might note. 
Okay. I do not, by the way, say Kaepernick does not have a right, just as we all should, to call for America to continue to to grow and to move forward and to to really walk in in higher nobility. But 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 I would call most people today in 2020 to really lean into giving thanks for what we have while we call for something better. And Kaepernick's comments are just mm. okay. So let's look at Douglas. Douglas's speech is powerful. It's hard to hear. Uh, again, I think it's important to remember Douglas is not speaking to America in 2020. Uh, he may say some similar sounding things today, but I think the speech would overall be radically different today. Uh, he's speaking to an America that is presently still engaged in and endorsing uh, just horrific racially based slavery. Frederick Douglass. You profess to believe that of one blood, God made all nations of men to dwell on the face of all the earth and hath commanded all men everywhere to love one another. Yet you notoriously hate and glory in your hatred, all men whose skins are not colored like your own. You declare before the world and are understood by the world to declare that you hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet you hold securely in a bondage which, according to your own Thomas Jefferson, is worse than ages of that which your fathers rose in rebellion to, to oppose, a seventh, seventh part of your inhabitants of your country. Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad, it corrupts your politicians at home, it saps the foundation of religion, it makes your name a hissing and a byword to a mocking earth. It is the antagonistic force in your government, the only thing that seriously disturbs and endangers your union. It fetters your progress. It is the enemy of improvement, the deadly foe of education. It fosters pride. It breeds insolence. It promotes vice. It shelters crime. It is a curse to the earth that supports it, and yet you cling to it, as if it were the sheet anchor of all your hopes. Oh, be warned, be warned, a horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is hissing at the tender breast of your faith, your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you the hideous monster and let the weight of 20 millions crush and destroy it forever. Ah, powerful, hard to hear but so true. First note, note his affirmation of the beauty and truthfulness of our founding ideals. He does not mock or deride the notion that all men are created equal. He notes the hypocrisy of the sinful practice of slavery in a nation that holds to this ideal. So first note, he affirms the beauty. Second note that he rightly identifies the hypocrisy of legalized slavery in a nation 
that was established on the truth that all men are created equal. Thirdly, he is warning us. He is calling for an abolition. Um, he, he's not undermining America's, the, the greatness of our founding ideals. He is calling America to rise up to them. He describes it as a young republic. And he noted its beautiful ideals, but he says there is a hideous monster nursing at its breast. His conclusion was not tear it all down, but a hopeful embrace that the great principles of our nation can be called upon to call us to end the great evil of slavery. Here's his conclusion. Allow me to say, in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I, therefore, leave off where I began, with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. And, and, and so Frederick Douglass, he is, uh, as one who's literally suffered himself under slavery and looking at a, a nation that still has this practice legalized, he, he openly paints the dark picture, but he calls upon the great principles our nation was founded on the, and the genius of our American institutions. You see, if you, if you talk to Colin Kaepernick today, he would say America was founded on slavery and evil notions, and and he would talk about the 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 the, the systemic racism within our institutions today. Frederick Douglass appealed to the great principles our nation was founded on, to the to the genius of our institutions, and he was optimistic even in the midst of great pain and frustration. He was, you might say, in some ways, patriotic. He recognized some of what was best about America and was calling us towards that. Trump gave a speech this past weekend. I did not listen to his speech. Uh, I don't listen to most of his speeches, but I do read parts of them once in a while. And I read part of this one. And at least this one excerpt that I came up upon really does a great job of articulating this is what's great about America. Trump said, our founders launched not only a revolution in government, but a revolution in the pursuit of justice, equality, liberty, and prosperity. Regarding the truth that all men are created equal, Trump said, enshrined a they enshrined a divine truth that changed the world forever. These immortal words set in motion the unstoppable march of freedom. Trump also noted that Americans believe in equal opportunity equal justice, and equal treatment for citizens of every race, background, religion, and creed. Every child of every color, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of God. These, these ideas, yes, this is what's great about America. And regardless of your thoughts on Trump the man or Trump the president, Frederick Douglass would agree with the sentiment he communicates here. I agree with this sentiment. What Trump mentions here is what's great about America. And we don't always live up to these great ideals, but may the Lord help us. Pray for a spiritual awakening for our citizens. Pray for wisdom for the leaders that we elect and empower, that we might grow to, to in a better and better and better way, 
embrace and walk out the notion that all men are created equal and that there should be liberty and justice for all. Now, in this conversation about patriotism in America, uh, sometimes even the, the, the phrase, you know, the American greatness or America's great comes up and is challenged. Um, America is a great country, and for many reasons. Uh, primarily, it's our founding ideals that continue to inform our public discourse in powerful ways. Uh, last year on July 2nd, I believe, the New York Times posted like just the, the, the silliest, uh, silliest, and, and uh, I'm trying to use words that are more interesting than silly, but not crass. Anywho, just like the dumbest video about questioning whether America was really great. Uh, you can Google it. Just Google New York Times, July 4th, America is not great. And uh, the, the the video like attempts to question our greatness by by citing, you know, middle school math and reading test scores. I'm like, really? Does does anyone who says America is great are they really thinking, oh, we have the best fourth grade math scores? Like, no, like that's that's silly and trivial. And um, certainly, I want to uh, I, I I want to pursue good education for the the youth of America on the whole. But that is not at all what people are thinking when they think the greatness of America. They're thinking about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and Fifth, sorry, Third Amendment. Courting troops is just not that interesting. But but we're thinking about due process and uh, double jeopardy, and we're thinking about free speech and uh, free exercise of religion and the right to keep and bear arms. Like These are the things we're thinking about when we talk about the greatness of America. And if somebody says something like, America is the greatest, two thoughts. Firstly, when you describe something that you have an affection for, and again, I think we've even noted that biblically it's okay to have a, a special affection for your nation, certainly for your family, uh, definitely for your local church. It's idiomatic in English today to say greatest and not mean objectively. You might say like, my boss is the greatest or my dad's the greatest. Uh, you're not making some sort of objective claim. You're just saying... I have a great boss. Yeah, I have great parents. Um, it's an idiom to express love and appreciation. Now, I don't tend to use this statement myself very often, and I'd probably even caution you against calling America the greatest, because then you might end up in some dumb debate about whether America is objectively the greatest, and, and maybe you can even try to make that case. But like, What's the measuring stick and on what grounds? It just seems like a silly and unhelpful debate to have. But certainly, some degree of patriotism is perfectly acceptable, and we really do have a lot to appreciate and, and celebrate about America. So to sum up some thoughts on patriotism, and this isn't, intend, isn't intended to be the end all, but certainly it's some, some helpful thoughts for you as you uh, explore and study and, and work through these questions on your own. Firstly, our allegiance as born-again believers is primarily to Jesus and to the people of God. Secondly, though it's temporary, we have earthly homes, and, and there's a special affection focus on our, our families and our places and our peoples that, that's appropriate, it's biblical, it's good. Thirdly, our patriot, patriotism should be one that, uh, that calls us to call our people to the best that God has for us, and uh, certainly part of this is calling America to repentance. Um, part of it in, in our context of America, I'm, I'm assuming most of you listening are Americans, but 
apply in your other context if if you aren't. Um, we have some founding ideals that we can literally proclaim. Truths that we have a creator. Do you realize the Declaration of Independence, when it talks about rights, it, it doesn't just uh, assert that humans have value and rights for no reason. We have value and we have rights because we've been created by God. And, and it, 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 it states that all men are created equal. And we see this is a biblical notion uh, that, that we've been created in the image of God. And, and our equality does not come from obviously unequal things like our height or our athleticism or our intelligence or like any sort of like economic output. That's not our equality because we can very quickly look at just look at two people and you'll be able to find tons of things that are unequal. We are equal in that we've been created by the Lord in his image and every person is created in the image of God, whether whether they're rich or poor, smart or uh, not particularly smart. Like our, our value comes from the reality that we've been created by God. And these are American ideals and they're something that we can certainly trumpet as the people of God. Finally, I just want to encourage us. Uh, I mentioned this a little bit when I was talking about Kaepernick and his context relative to Douglas's, but let's give thanks. And as Americans, we have a ton to give thanks for, to give thanks to the Lord for, and to celebrate our about our nation. We live in a relative to world history. We live in a safe, free, peaceful, peaceful and prosperous society. And I'm thankful. Um, certainly in America today, there are poor, but most people in America, even who are poor, have refrigerators, cell phones, food, clothes, a place to live. Like it, it really is amazing. And, and hey, to the extent that people are lacking those things, let's work together. Let's love our neighbors. Let's be generous. But wow, uh, it, it's easy to focus on some of the brokenness right now and lose perspective that in, in relative to world history, we really live in an amazing and special place. Let, let's give thanks. Let's be, let's, let's, let's celebrate. And on the 4th of July, uh, I think as Americans, it is, perfectly appropriate and right to say, yeah, this people that I have a, a special affection for and a special responsibility towards as, as an American, and th there's something that we have in terms of family and region and people that's biblical to, to recognize, man, we have a lot to celebrate here. We have a lot to give thanks for. Okay. Uh, a question came in. Any ideas about prison reform and how to rehabilitate offenders who get released from prison? We need a more relational and restorative way to do that. I agree. So firstly, uh, there are a lot of people in prison right now for nonviolent offenses, and I'm a big fan of just uh, dramatically shortening prison time for nonviolent non offenses. And then I have some ideas for the parole, probation type relationships uh, that will both allow us to shorten prison time but also I think would dramatically uh, boost the number of ex-inmates who successfully get jobs and education and fit into society and can contribute and live uh, really uh, healthy lives. So one thought off the bat, um, one way to decrease prison time for violent offenders would be a slightly more generous use of the death penalty. Um, I'm hesitant, though, on this one. In theory, I'm open to the death penalty, and I'll, I'll look at some scripture in just a moment, but I'm hesitant in practice because America does not have a great history on this one. Um, 
let's look at the theory first. Some of the, the maybe even like the, the theological underpinnings, you might say. In Genesis chapter 9, this is pre uh, the Mosaic law. Uh, this is right after the flood. Noah and his family, God's establishing covenant with them. You might be familiar with the, the rainbow story. This is that part. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. Um, if someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. Um, we see in the Mosaic Law a lot of uh, instances of the death penalty, but for the sake of time and I think effectively making the point, let's jump ahead to Acts 25. What's interesting here is the Apostle Paul is on trial, so to speak, and he's making an appeal, but in his appeal he says, like, I'm not ethically opposed or philosophically opposed to the death penalty. Um, and, and that's really interesting. Okay, so Acts 25, verse 10. Paul replied, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I am not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so P Paul was making an appeal, and I don't want to jump too much into the story, but he made this interesting passing comment. He said, if I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. He didn't say something like, yeah, I did the crimes you're saying, but the death penalty is unethical or immoral. He basically said like, look, I'm, I'm fine with that in theory, but I didn't do these things. Let me stand before Caesar to defend myself. In Romans chapter 13, when Paul's making some comments on government, we referenced the, this passage a few weeks ago. At one point, he references the fact that the government carries the sword. Uh, Romans 13 verse 4, for it, government, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. This can at times be, be referenced in the context of uh, international conflict, war. Uh, but it, very clearly here, it, it's more, more focused on the notion of crime and punishment. And he's saying that the government carries a sword not in vain, or it's not for no reason the government has a sword. Uh, this, there's an appropriate use of the sword by the state. Now, the thing about the death penalty in the American context is that since 1973, there have been 170 death row inmates exonerated. Now, that might not sound like that many, and, and I guess in absolute numbers, that's not a, a like staggering number in itself in a country of hundreds of millions. But but when you realize that most people who, who are guilty of murder get life imprisonment, like the death penalty is not common. Um, out of a relatively small pool of people who have been considered to be most obviously and most heinously guilty of murder, 170 of them have been, not simply that they, they were innocent, it's likely a lot more were innocent. They were proven innocent and were able to be released uh, and exonerated and all charges dropped. Uh, there was another case just this past week, a guy named Kareem Johnson in Pennsylvania, uh, a guy from Philadelphia. He was sentenced to death by a Philadelphia jury 13 years ago. And on July 1st, 2020, so about one week ago, he was formally and finally exonerated of all the charges and they were all dropped 
all the charges that were against him. And in his case, what was found was that the, the prosecution had basically lied, presented false evidence. Uh, one could debate, was it intentional or was it accidental? But there's the circumstances are so sad and realizing, man, this guy, he was in prison for 13 years. He was on his way to be killed by the state. And he was innocent. And and this isn't just a one-time thing. This is 170 times now. Uh, and like I said, who knows how many were innocent but have been put to death uh, in, in our nation's history. And, and so the, the, the practical side of things, I'm like, in theory, I'm open to the death penalty. But man, in practice, I'm just... Oh, I'm, I'm I'm very 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 hesitant because we do not have a good record of actually convicting guilty people, uh, and that's that is heartbreaking to me. I realize like accidents happen and no system is perfect, but it seems like our system is far from perfect, and so I'm pretty hesitant. Um, but I do realize that there are plenty of legitimate murderers, and I I don't think it's it's neither just no, just towards them nor just to society to let these murderers be running around. So so I am I'm in favor of prisons. Some people want to abolish prisons. I'm like, uh, I'm kind of hesitant. The only way to really abolish prisons is to use death penalty for most violent cl- crimes and I am quite hesitant. This episode's already getting a little bit on in time. I want to look at one more passage that might just inform us of a of a of a mindset and an approach towards uh, the penal system and rehabilitation of offenders. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus is speaking. Uh, he kind of undoes the eye for eye mindset. Not to say that there shouldn't be a, a penal system and repercussions, but the the, the vindictive, bitter uh, tendency that we all have as human beings towards those who wrong us—that's not God's heart for us. In Matthew chapter five, verse forty-three. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Righteous. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, What are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so a short thought experiment. Um, Instead of just thinking of criminals as this distant class of people, um, imagine someone in your life that you love, maybe a, a close family member or a best friend, and imagine they do something relatively heinous. I have an extended family member that I love who who did something, uh, frankly, pretty horrible. In fact, I'm not going to say what it was. He's in prison. He's serving maybe a 15-year sentence, and uh, he deserves to be in prison. And that's sad. It's tragic. Uh, it's tragic that he he's in prison for 15 years, but it's a result of something far more tragic that he perpetrated himself. Fortunately, good news, he's really turned to Jesus in the midst of this, uh, and and God can work things together for the good of those who love him. Not that God can, God does work things together for those who love him. Uh, so there's hope in the midst of this, but it's, it's a really broken situation because of his sin. 
and and thinking through, okay, imagine somebody you love who's done something just 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 violent crime. They've they've killed someone, they've raped someone, something like that. How should we treat them? I think we all recognize the loving thing to do is to in it from a governmental sense is to pursue justice. The the government doesn't carry the sword in vain. There should be a good trial. They should have a you know a a, a quali- competent defense provided. But if they're guilty of a crime, justice is um, some sort of uh, some sort of that they need to if they've stolen some money they need to pay it back if they've you know there there's some sort of debt to the person they've offended there's some sort of debt to society um and and that that's just but but also man when when you love somebody you recognize okay let, there should be a consequence but man to the extent that it's possible let's try to help them move through this and if they're in prison for 10 years how do we do our best so that at the end of 10 years they can move forward and have a second chance and uh like we don't want to lock them in some sort of uh felony class life for the rest of their lives sadly what we have today is that if you commit a felony you might end up sp- spending little time in prison but now that you have a felony on your record it can make uh you can lose your right to vote your your right to bear arms you can lose uh, it can be harder to get a job you're kind of like a marked person and and there's little opportunity really for redemption and for growth but we know that man as those who love our enemies uh, certainly we want to see justice but we also want to see opportunity for redemption opportunity for growth and and just using the simple okay somebody i love is in prison um if if they're guilty i want them to be in prison but man i also want opportunities for them to uh do their time, but then get out and be able to live a life that contributes to the world around them, to be able to live a life that's where, where they have opportunity for forgiveness and for uh, a fit in with society. So, so here, here's a thought. What if, uh, so dramatically reduce prison time for nonviolent offenses, but even for violent offenses, what if the practice was to lean into a parole of sorts, even more so than prison, maybe only parole for nonviolent crimes, and then for violent crimes, often a, a far reduced prison time, and then with opportunity for parole. And parole, rather than just like meeting up with a parole officer, maybe there's still some sort of parole officer, but what if there was a, a community that vouched for you, a community that would invest in you, and a community that would be somewhat on the hook for your good behavior? So this is a bit of a parallel with bail. Um, posting bail or a bond can take someone who's been accused of a crime and they're in jail, and you can actually post bail so that they're free until they've been convicted. And one of the problems with bail is that it has led to some, just a horrific pattern of people who are very possibly innocent pleading guilty to felonies and then getting out of prison on time served. Uh, maybe I'll explore that some more some other time. Uh, so, so there are like some real problems in the way that's happened over the years. But the basic principle of bail is uh, what if my best friend is convicted of grand larceny and he's he's arraigned and he goes to jail and his trial is set for like a year from now? Well, if I pay 50 grand, he could get out of jail 
as long as he shows up at trial. And then when he does show up at trial and he's either uh, found not guilty or else found guilty, I get my 50 grand back and he either goes to prison or else he's free, 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 free. And, uh, but I get my 50 grand back. That 50 grand though, I pay and I pay that saying, Hey, I, 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 I believe I have confidence that my friend will show back up and, and I'll get my 50 grand back. I, now to the extent that I, his friend believe he's not guilty or believe that even if he is guilty, he will go back to trial and stand trial and I'll get my 50 grand back. Like I'm more and more likely to pay the 50 grand. So it's kind of like, yeah, you say your friend is good. Put your money where your mouth is. What if there was a bit of a similar system for, uh, for in my, my case, I have an extended family member who's serving, like I said, uh, about a 15 year sentence. What if instead of a 15 year sentence, like with maybe slight get out or good early on good behavior, what if it was like get out in half the time if a community of vouched for background checked citizens put like $100,000 on the line and this convict would get released in like half the time and be released to this community for us to invest in and to help him find a job and find a fit in life. And if if he uh, is is convicted of another crime within the next like within the, the remainder of his sentence would be which would be like another, you know, seven or eight years in this case, we as a community would be on the hook for like a hundred grand or some sort of some sort of incentive that doesn't make the system impossible to work, but also gives us a real, hey, you think this guy who's legitimately guilty, um, you think he should, justice requires him to pay for his crimes, but now you recognize, hey, we think he's ready to be released and we can help him uh, rehabilitate and, and be a, a useful contributing member of society. It, it Again, it's a little bit of put your money where your mouth is. And, and you might say, well, some people don't have a community of people who are willing to vouch for them. Well, I'd say two things. Firstly, true. But just because some people don't necessarily have this community doesn't mean that others don't. And uh, the reality is, yeah, it's, it's, nice, it's, it's nice for a variety of reasons to have family and friends who love you and trust you and can vouch for you. Uh, and just because not everybody has that doesn't mean we shouldn't ignore the value of that. Uh, but secondly, you could have organizations that arise that say, hey, we're going to connect with people who might not have a community that's willing to do this, but we'll, we'll find uh, inmates and we'll interview them and connect with them. And we'll try to find the inmates where we're like, hey, we can connect this inmate with a, uh, with a community that might not know him or her, I should say her, but most inmates are hims, uh, might not know him well enough to vouch themselves, but they're willing to invest in somebody we'll vouch for. And we as an organization will put our reputation and money on the line and connect him with almost like a, a foster community, so to speak, who will invest in and serve. And if he gets convicted, it would be this third party organization that kind of uh, bears the the brunt of that fall. Uh, would some of these people certainly commit crimes after being released? Yeah, some of them would. But I think a lot of them would actually thrive uh, and, and probably do a lot better than most ex-convicts do today. And uh, again, you're, you're, you're 
a, a hot take could definitely be like, mm, I see problems with this, but I'm saying, let's love our enemies as ourselves. Uh, let, let's, let's love those who might hate us and persecute us. And, and how can we take a convict that maybe even uh, offended, and by offended, I mean like literally violently uh, violated you or somebody you love, how can we love them? And, and yes, pursue justice in the situation, but also if, if, if justice is like a 20 year prison sentence, man, how, how do we love them? And what if they were your best friend or your, your child? I, I hope you would want them to go to prison, but I also hope that you would want for them to flourish after they finish prison. And we should love everyone that way. And we should try to pursue opportunities that let as many as possible um, flourish after prison. And so that 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 notion of connecting bail with uh, or parole almost with a bail like community vouches for you and then is incentivized to invest in you and help you connect, man, that seems like super. I think it would be massively successful. And so that kind of brainstorm, I think, is exciting. Hopefully, you think it's interesting. Hey, if you have some other ideas on uh, penal system reforms or uh, like how to re- re- rehabilitate uh, prisoners, please let me know. I'd love to hear some more ideas. Maybe I'll share them on podcast. Um, but for now, that wraps up this episode. I do want to keep hearing from you guys. I have a few questions left in the queue, but it's actually, it's kind of been dwindling the past couple of weeks. So if you have any thoughts, anything that you think would be interesting for us to explore and discuss on the podcast here, please let me know. Shoot me a text at 315-566-0056. If you've been listening to the podcast and enjoying it, please rate it, uh, rate, review, uh, maybe recommend it to a friend. Have a blessed day. Peace.